0: Welcome to In the Spotlight, hosted by me, Emily Schaefer, and brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. If you've joined us before for an episode, you know that the goal of this podcast is to bring you stories from some of the exciting new research that grad students and postdocs in the sciences are performing every day. And today will be no exception. We are once again going to change directions completely from some of the other science disciplines that we've heard from so far and pivot instead into Earth Sciences, Joining me today on the show is a fellow graduate student at Northwestern University, Jamie Neely. Jamie is a fourth-year PhD student in the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences. So welcome, Jamie. Thank you for being on the show.
1: Hi, Emily. Thanks for having me.
0: So to kick things off first, I always like to start by asking, what got you into science in the first place, and how did you end up studying Earth sciences? (laughs)
1: That's a good question. Um, I like complex problems. Um, I find them fascinating. And uh, sort of anything that sort of we don't know the answer to, I really like to study. Earth science specifically, um, the, you know, earthquakes are sort of a real big societal hazard. um, And there's a lot we don't know about them. Uh, I have a background in physics from my undergrad, Uh, so when I was sort of thinking about uh, what I want to do, or do I want to go to grad school, um, sort of I started thinking about what can I do with my my physics degree, and what I really wanted to study is sort of a problem that has big societal implications, and earthquakes are sort of a huge issue for a lot of parts of the world.
0: I know a lot of times earth sciences kind of gets pigeonholed into just thinking about Global warming and climate science and all those sorts of related things, but does your research on earthquakes have anything to do with climate science, or is it completely different?
1: No, it's, uh, it's 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 completely different. Um, the earth science departments are kind of funny. Um, we have sort of a wide range of sort of subdisciplines. So, you know, I study the research group that I'm in. Uh, we study earthquakes, earthquake hazards. Uh, there are other research groups in our department. Who are climate science focused. Other folks are your more traditional geologists that go out in the field and look at rocks. So really the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences is this real sort of hodgepodge of different sort of subdisciplines that are all studying sort of earth problems in general.
0: Gotcha. And what sort of problems are you trying to tackle with your work? What sort of problems do we need to solve related to
1: earthquakes? So there's two real big problems uh, when it comes to earthquakes. Uh, The first is, you know, how big can earthquakes get? The size of earthquakes really kind of depends on where they occur. And, you know, there's a lot we don't know about sort of how big earthquakes can get in different regions. Uh, So that's the first one, sort of how big can earthquakes get? Uh, The second one is, you know, how often are they going to occur? Um, So when you're trying to prepare for earthquakes, you know, you want to make sure you have good plans in place, good buildings and building codes uh, in place, you want to know sort of how often earthquakes can occur. So the second part is sort of looking at past earthquakes and trying to figure out, okay, well, how often is an earthquake that big likely to happen again in the future?
0: Gotcha. Maybe this is a silly question, but how exactly do you make any sort of guesses as to what's going to happen in the future?
1: That's a, that's a good question. Um, so it's really hard. Um, the one thing I wanted to sort of preface is that we cannot predict when earthquakes are going to occur. Um, if someone tries to tell you that they can predict earthquakes, they're probably lying to you. Um, but the best we can do is sort of look at the past and then sort of look at how often earthquakes occurred in the past. And sort of what, we, what I do is sort of build statistical models to try to understand, OK, we have this past earthquake data. Let's figure out sort of the best statistical model to think about how often an earthquake is going to occur in the future. So a lot of our work is really looking at past earthquake records and trying to say, okay, what can we sort of glean from them to understand what future earthquake behavior might be?
0: Good answer. That makes a lot of
1: sense. You mentioned before
0: about wanting to do research that does have a lot of societal impacts. What sort of things do you imagine that could come from the type of research that you're doing now?
1: Uh, yeah, so so there's a lot of the big issue that we have is sort of trying to understand, you know, how do you prepare for an earthquake? Big earthquakes are relatively infrequent. They don't happen very often. You don't have big earthquakes every day. Uh, but you do have big earthquakes, you know, depending on where you are, you could have them every couple hundred years, um, maybe even a couple thousand years. And certain parts of the world are more prone to earthquakes than other parts of the world. And so to prepare for an earthquake, there's a lot of long-term planning that goes into that. And big to that is sort of trying to figure out, you know, how often these big earthquakes are gonna happen. And you have to figure out how you can design buildings to withstand them. And so you have to make a lot of decisions sort of when you're putting together building codes that you wanna sort of put out there in the world. It's okay, you need to build to a certain standard. And so the work that we're doing is trying to figure out, well, how often these earthquakes are going to occur, can then be used by sort of engineers and policy planners to figure out, okay, what type of building standards do we need to incorporate to sort of withstand earthquakes that we may expect, say, in the next 30 years, maybe next 50 years, next 100 years. So the work that we're doing sort of goes into that planning that engineers and, and policy planners do.
0: Okay. And you mentioned this link with policy. Are there any current policies that you can use as an example to point to how this determines the way that we prepare for earthquakes?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot. If you look at the at the west coast of, uh, of North America, so west coast of the United States, so California, Oregon, uh, Washington state, um, these states have building codes in place today to withstand future earthquakes. Um, now, they don't know when these earthquakes are going to happen, but they have these building codes in place. What we're trying to do is sort of look at regions, you know, look at places like in the West Coast that that have these bigger earthquakes and say, okay, let's help you come up with these better models to understand, you know, how bad the shaking is going to be by saying, okay, well, how often are these are these large earthquakes going to occur? So one of the places that we're studying currently, we're we're essentially trying to figure out essentially the probability of large earthquakes is off the coast of Washington state. Uh, So Cascadia is sort of the region, what what it's called. And that's an area that it's prone to really, really large earthquakes, uh, but they're really, really infrequent. The largest one, the most recent large one that occurred there, happened about 300 years ago, um, so well before uh, Washington State or Oregon, you know, were worse states. And so, what we're trying to understand is, you, you know, what model best describes how often these really large earthquakes can occur. Um, so that when policymakers are putting together sort of their plans, they can figure out, well, how often should we expect these big earthquakes?
0: okay, but you don't predict
1: earthquakes exactly. we don't predict it. It's sort of like an odds game we're playing, so the idea is that, okay, you know we can't say, I guess the way to think about it is that someone thinks of a prediction that say, Okay, well, give me the date and time and how big you think the earthquake's going to be. That's something that we as seismologists cannot do I mean. We don't have the ability to say, you know, on June 7th, there's going to be a magnitude six earthquake. We we don't, in in a given location, we don't have the ability to do that. But what we do have the ability to do, and what we've been working on, and the research that I I focus on is saying, okay, let's say over the last, what are the odds over the next 50 years that we could have a pretty large earthquake? We have some confidence to say, okay, over the next 50 years, there's probably going to be a big one, perhaps we don't necessarily know when in that 50-year period it's going to occur or where exactly it's going to occur um, in, in a given region. It's sort of looking at the odds and saying, okay, what's the odds of a big earthquake occurring in the next 50, 100 years, et cetera?
0: Okay, that makes sense. If you had to guess, do you ever see your field going in the direction that you could predict earthquakes to that level of accuracy that you're talking about? <laughs>
1: People have tried in the past to do this. There's been a couple studies that have said, you know, that have tried to predict when earthquakes are going to occur. They have all failed. There was a large, someone claimed, I don't think there was really much even of a study behind this, but someone claimed that they were going to predict an earthquake to happen in Missouri in the new Madrid fault zone, uh, in the early nineties. Um, and I, there's this news clip of all these sort of news vans showing up cause this person says on this day, there's going to be this big earthquake and all sort of seismologists knew this is not going to happen. This is not real, but it was sort of clear, a clear example where someone saying, yes, there's going to be an earthquake today. And it did not happen. And so <laughs> there are people who are working to try to understand if we could better, um, Look at things like precursor signals, so signals that would maybe occur right before an earthquake would happen. And there's a lot of really fascinating research going into that now. But today we don't. We don't have that ability to say, yeah, there's an earthquake going to happen. You know, we don't know if an earthquake is going to happen tomorrow or going to happen 50 years from now.
0: I feel like I can visualize the exact scene you're describing, because earthquakes get kind of sensationalized in pop culture and stuff. I can visualize this really crazy scientist being like, I'm warning you, the earthquake is coming.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like your um, pop science fiction movie. You know, I think there's the idea that, well, yes, we would like to be able to do that. That's certainly not within our, our abilities at the, at the moment.
0: That makes sense. So thinking more about like what the general public understands about your field when you see, you know, pop culture or movies or whatever talking about these earthquakes, what do they get right and what do they get wrong when they portray <laughs> your work?
1: That's a that's a funny question. I mean, I think there's a lot of a lot of like the, the, I think what they get right is that, you know, these are very destructive. I mean, earthquakes are very destructive. Big ones, you know, knock down cities have really pretty dire consequences for uh, societies, for people living nearby, infrastructure, that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously it does get very sens- sensationalized, you know, in pop culture. So there'll be like, you know, you'll see a, a movie that'll have you know about earthquakes and all of a sudden it's going to combine like a thousand different things about earthquakes which, which all could never all happen at the exact same time into one monster horrific scenario. So I think that's certainly something that's uh <laughs> that gets gets misconstrued at least in, in sometimes in uh, at least in sci-fi stuff like that. But I think the other thing is that one of the questions I think whenever I'm travel like whenever I go to a conference or something you know like in a cab and you know they ask, "Oh, what, what are you doing out here? Like, well, why out in Seattle or why out in San Francisco?" The question that they always ask after I explain, like, "Oh, I'm a seismologist. I study earthquakes." It's sort of, well, "When's the next big one? Um, when? When's the next big earthquake? Oh, like, when's this going to happen?" And that's something that you know I always kind of laugh when I get that question because, like, like I said like, a couple minutes ago, is that you really we don't know. I mean, it could be could be tomorrow. It could be in a minute. It could be in a hundred years from now. Like, We really don't know those types of things. And and that's sort of a It's kind of humbling for us as seismologists, because I think this is it shows the expectation that the public has. They sort of they would like to see us being like, oh, we have this confidence. We know this is going to happen. But as a scientist, like in our field, this is sort of one of the big unknowns. And it's sort of a clear disconnect between what the public wants and what we're able to actually give the public now.
0: I see. That makes sense. So thinking more about your field in seismology and all these earth sciences, where do you see the discipline progressing into the future? What can we expect out of earth science research?
1: So I think one of the big revolutions in earth science research is to sort of like increase computing power and the ability to sort of run really complex uh, simulations uh, moving forward. A lot of earth science research, and especially the the work that I do, Looks at past events uh, to try to understand the future better. And so understanding earthquakes specifically, you know, if we had ten thousand years to study earthquake records, then we'd have a really, really good understanding of earthquake processes. We'd have a really better understanding of okay, well, how how frequently are these likely to occur? how big are these earthquakes going to get? I mean, obviously, we would like to have some answers to these questions before the next 10,000 years. And so by using all these computer simulations, we're essentially able to really look at this whole suite of possible outcomes for earthquakes by using these computer simulations to really understand earthquake behavior better without necessarily having to wait thousands and thousands of years to actually observe that, that earthquake record. And so I'd really say it's sort of the advancements with, incorporating mathematical modeling and sort of computing power advancements into a lot of this research.
0: Very interesting. It feels like so many fields these days are really benefiting from big data and all of these different ways that we can portray data and analyze data. So it's cool to hear that it's cropping up even in earth sciences too.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So Jamie, how has the field of seismology
1: evolved over time? humans have been experiencing earthquakes obviously since humans have been around but it is only fairly recently and relatively very recently that we've really started to understand what you know why earthquakes occur and even more recently sort of what is causing them you know in the historical record uh, so people keep these you know there's these great historical earthquake records you know an earthquake might have happened in 1620 and someone wrote down you know Fifteen chimneys were knocked over in this town and the church steeple got damaged. And so we have really good historical records of sort of the damage uh, caused by earthquakes, um, especially in regions that have a long sort of written historical record. But we don't really have a good understanding of why earthquakes started to occur or why earthquakes occur until the beginning of the 20th century. Um, and so the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, is sort of the one that everyone's sort of familiar with, this earthquake, destroyed San Francisco, and caused a huge fire. San Francisco was sort of rebuilt from the ashes of this. That was one of the first earthquakes to really be systematically studied about sort of what happened afterwards. Um, Or sort of, you know, systematically studied afterwards to understand, you know, what happened. After that earthquake, geologists went out in the field and sort of wandering around California. They were looking at sort of the fault where the earthquake occurred. And essentially the fault is just sort of where the two sides of the, of the earth move. And so for really large earthquakes, you can actually see that on the surface of the earth. So like you're walking in the ground, you're walking on a field, you can actually see where the two sides moved, to the fault. Um, and so, you know, geologists were sort of walking along that, documenting um, sort of observations that they saw. Um, one of the sort of more famous observations they saw there uh, was with this fence post that essentially had run right across the fault. And so, you know, before the earthquake, the fence was connected, the earthquake happens, and then the two sides of the fence on the opposite sides of the fault are, you know, several, several feet apart. This is sort of providing evidence of that, oh, when an when earthquake happens, you have sort of different sides of the fault moves. And sort of these initial observations in sort of the beginning of the 20th century was sort of the big start of seismology, sort of understanding the physical processes that are driving earthquakes but even then we still didn't have a great full understanding of sort of what really in the big scheme was sort of driving the earthquakes in total Um, and it wasn't until the 1960s that sort of the dominant theory sort of explaining why we have earthquakes sort of really emerged and that's plate tectonics like plate tectonics is the idea that the earth has these sort of plates moving at the surface of it and sort of where we see the most earthquakes are sort of where these tectonic plates are rubbing up against each other. And while the idea had sort of been proposed earlier at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, it wasn't until really the mid 20th century that this was widely accepted and sort of proven that you know this is sort of the grand theory that's explaining a lot of the earthquake behavior that we're seeing. So it's really kind of fascinating that, you know, earthquakes have been around. People have been observing earthquakes, obviously, forever. But, you know, we're looking at maybe in the last 70 years that we've really, truly begun to understand the processes that are driving this. Um, And there's still so much that we don't know about earthquakes just because, you know, we're still sort of understanding, okay, we now know the big picture. But there's a lot more in sort of the individual, more granular detail that we're still trying to fill in today.
0: That's really fascinating because I feel like from my perspective, plate tectonics was always something that we were taught in grade school and just completely accepted. So it's it's kind of mind blowing to think that we didn't recognize that until quite recently in our history.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if you think about like other sciences where it's like you think of more modern debates about things, uh, like in physics with like quantum mechanics or relativity. I mean, that all about whether those should be accepted or not beginning of the 20th century. And those are seem much more complicated than something like plate tectonics, um, which think about it now, it's, oh, it makes sense. But, you know, the idea of it was still really radical when it was proposed. And the idea that continents are moving is, is really fascinating. It's really hard for people to wrap their heads around because it occurs on such a long time scale.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I'm also really intrigued by the fact that your field has to parse through this like really old historical data to understand some of the earthquakes that have happened a really long time ago. And how do you get that data? How do you look through it? How do you incorporate that into simulations and whatnot?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of really good work, both by seismologists uh, and historians. Essentially, what they go through is sort of just old written records. People have been pretty good for, you know, in places that have written records, people have often written down the damage that occurs from earthquakes. Uh, And so sort of in different forms, depending on the country, some places like Japan have a really long written record of earthquakes. Earthquakes are very common in Japan and can be very destructive. And so they have very detailed records going back like you know, hundreds of years, detailing, you know, when an earthquake occurred the damage that was caused by it, and the locations where that damage occurred. The other place, you know, Italy is another place with a really long uh, written record of these types of things. Obviously, certain places, if there there isn't a a long written record, we're not going to have this information, but there's been a lot more sort of recent attempts at this. The research group that involved with the Northwestern, one of the things we've looked at is this project called CHIMP, which is the California Historical Intensity Mapping Project. What we're doing is looking at written records of large earthquakes in california essentially over the last 150 years this database that's one of my lab mates is is running what she has done is she's collected historical uh, written reports of earthquakes and so some of them are in newspapers and so there'll be a newspaper article about an earthquake that occurred in the 1880s and then it'll say you know these towns experienced this damaged people in this town felt the earthquake. And a lot of times these stories are kind of, these reports are rather interesting because it'll say, oh, so-and-so was startled and woken up in their sleep. Uh, but you can actually use the distribution or the location of these reports and how what people said in it to try to figure out how big these earthquakes were. Uh, So you can actually go through, read these newspaper articles. Uh, Later on, the U.S. government actually started sending out these postcards. And what they would do is they'd send these blank postcards out. They'd have people fill them out uh, with reports about, you know, oh, did you experience this earthquake? You know, describe what happened. Okay, where were you? Did objects in your house move? Did your bookshelves fall over? That kind of stuff. And then based on sort of the the damage that people report, we we can get a sense of how strong the shaking was in a location. And from that information, we can then actually figure out how big the earthquake was. It's that sort of final product of, like, you know, how big the earthquake was that I use to sort of in these simulations say, okay, well, we think an earthquake of a given magnitude occurred in the 1880s and another one occurred in the early 20th century. Then we can say, okay, we think earthquakes can get this big. Let's see if they can get any bigger. So, really, that's sort of how we're using this historical data. So, we sort of take these reports. And then you can actually figure out how big they are based on how bad the shaking is described in the in the report.
0: Very cool. And then you apply that to try and figure out the future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, we've covered quite a bit of different topics today, but Jamie, I just want to ask you one final question. If me and, and everybody listening were to understand one thing about your research, what would you want to spotlight?
1: I would say that, that earthquakes, although they are often rare, they are quite destructive. And I think that the thing to understand is that if you live in a place where earthquakes occur, and they occur rather frequently, it's always important to sort of be prepared um, and have sort of a an emergency plan to, to deal with earthquakes. And no one can tell you when an earthquake is going to occur, but they very likely that an earthquake will occur at some point in the future if you live in a place where they're prone.
0: Awesome. And if people listening today are interested in your work and want to learn more, how would you recommend that they contact you?
1: Uh, You can send me an email. Uh, My email address is james at earth.northwestern.edu. Awesome.
0: Thank you so much again, Jamie, for being on the podcast today. This was a really great conversation. I really enjoyed hearing about your work. No problem. No problem. Thank you for listening to In the Spotlight. As always, you can find this podcast on Twitter at Spotlight the Pod. And this podcast was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. And you can learn more about SPOT at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or on Twitter at SpotForceNU. Thank you so much again for listening. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you've been listening to this podcast.